Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, obviously, we are starting a brand new year. 2023, we all hope, is going to be rather better for investment trust shareholders than it proved to be in 2022, when we had the combined effect of poor markets, both the stock market and the bond market, down more than 10%, first time for many, many years, if ever, and discounts widening across most sectors in the investment trust world. In the financial markets, the week started quietly, but finished on a strong note after a strong non-farm payrolls uh, release of data in the US on Friday. That's one of the most widely followed uh, indicators of the health of the US economy. That was positive. The number of job created was significantly up, around 200,000, which is consistent with a relatively stronger economy, though this is a lagging indicator. So you can't read too much into it, unfortunately, though the market likes to do so. So that was up and that helped the week to finish with a uh, a positive movement in equity markets. The US S&P 500 was up uh, more than 2% on the day and uh, around up around that amount over the week. While the uh, in the UK, the FTSE 100 was uh, actually did even better. It was up around 3% or so over the course of the week. Meanwhile, in the bond market, we saw uh, bond yields come down, interestingly, consistent with uh, the view that uh, we might be heading towards a recession, but also perhaps reflecting the fact that if that happens, then inflation will come down as well. So here we saw bond yields come down uh, across the term structure uh, quite significantly in the US, and the yield curve has steepened, which is uh, one of the classic indicators that a recession might be on the way. I think now that's fairly certain myself. And the gap between the two and the 10-year US bond, for example, has risen to around 75 basis points, which is uh, quite significant. The longer-term bond yield being uh, lower than the short-term bond yield. Meanwhile, in commodities, though, the positive news from oil and gas prices were down. The oil price was down quite a bit, whereas uh, gold and silver were up and copper was also up. So kind of mixed signals from there. But uh, overall, a quiet start as I said, to the week, we're ending on a positive note, which is always good to see. In the investment trust sector, meanwhile, the investment company index ended up positively over the week, tracking the performance of both the equity and bond markets, uh, and the average discount finished the week at uh, 13.2% compared to 13.4% at the end of last year. Notable movers over the week. I would uh, single out China Investment Trust. Clearly here, the uh, the end of the very strict COVID policy has had a positive impact on the Chinese Investment Trust. They're all up around 6% this week. Meanwhile, at the other end of the scale, we've seen sharp sell-off in RIT Capital. We'll talk about that a bit later. And also uh, some sell-off in the energy exposure of trusts such as Riverstone Energy off just uh, short of 5% in share price terms and one or two others uh, also selling off Alliance Technology, for example, down about 3% over the week. Uh, And in NAV terms, we've seen uh, positive gains from the Chinese Investment Trust even uh, more significant in a way than their share price total returns up between uh, 8 to 10% on average. And meanwhile, we've seen also some gains from couple of specialist equity trusts, including Artemis Alpha and Edinburgh Worldwide, both up around 5%, and TR Property 
have around 5% as well, which is a kind of geared play on what's happening to commercial property. And in NAV terms, uh, well, not many significant declines actually on a positive week. The worst uh, performer was Aberdeen Latin American income down just 4%. More about this on the Moneymakers uh, website. To discuss all this this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Ewan Lovett-Turner, who is the Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities, and uh, who at this time of year is hard at work producing some chunky research documents covering the year just gone and the year to come. So we're going to be talking about some of those this week, as well as uh, looking back at last year. So to kick off, Ewan, let's talk about 2022 not the best year for investment trusts, in fact, one of the worst for many years. But tell us a little bit about who were the winners and who were the losers or the leaders and the laggards last year, and if there's any sort of commonality around the reasons for those discounts and poor performance. Certainly, Jonathan, happy to dig into that and happy new year to everyone. Uh, yes, uh, Echo, hopefully uh, a calmer or more pleasant one this year than we, we had last year. At a high level, looking at the, the performance of investment trusts, certainly Looking, I'll have a look at a bit of alternatives and equity funds and, and the different and similar drivers that you've got going on. Amongst equity investment trusts, it was a difficult year, particularly reflecting that quite a lot of the universe has, has got a bit of a growth bias, particularly given some of those funds that, you know, have, have done very well over recent years and got larger. So the rise in interest rates and the sell-off in growth stocks hit a lot of the investment trust universe. And, and that means many of the equity investment companies underperform their benchmarks this year. And if you look on ad- aggregate, things like um, global equity or European, North America, looking at all of those, Japan and Asia, all of those on an NAV basis uh, underperformed benchmarks for those regions. And also you had, as you mentioned, the, the widening of discounts, which meant that share price performance was even worse. Also areas of the market with a bit of a small mid-cap bias using that investment company structure has its benefits over the long term, but it was a pretty tough year for small and mid-caps and they were certainly at the bottom of the the performance figures. In terms of the leaders on sort of sector levels and themes, equity income and value managers were the ones that perform well as, as the value style made some sort of recovery in a rising rate environment and, and funds with exposure to mining and energy or regions with, with exposure to those um, did pretty well. The sort of reverse of companies with exposure to, to tech and, and biotech doing badly. Um, in general, sort of defensive and multi-asset companies performed pretty well on, on NAV basis, but there, there were some that suffered deratings. On the equity side of things, the companies looking on a fund-by-fund basis that were performing the best, that energy and mining comes through with things like the BlackRock vehicles, energy and resources and world mining, City Natural Resources all up there, and a bit more of a a tiddler in golf investment, uh, all with exposure to that sort of oil and gas and energy. Value managers like Murray International coming back into favour, City of London, merchants all doing better than they have done in recent years. Several funds exposed to corporate action were up on that list as well. And also the likes of Ruffer doing particularly well in a a difficult environment. 
Interestingly, inside the top 30 investment companies is actually a DC investment trust, a small cap manager managed by Stuart Widdowson. In a time that small caps did very, very poorly, I think that was a pretty impressive performance. He tries to bring a private equity style to public markets. Uh, the weakest performance, no surprise to see what was J.P. Morgan Russian, now J.P. Morgan emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa. At the bottom of the listings, uh, down nearly 90%, although it does remain on a 90-odd premium with investors thinking there might be some embedded value in those written down Russian holdings. The rest of the list heavily dominated by growth and technology or funds with big tech exposure, uh, the likes of Scottish Mortgage, a number of Bailey Gifford vehicles in their Europe and US, Edinburgh Worldwide, others struggling, the likes of Allianz Tech and Polar Cap Tech, whilst UK small caps also featuring pretty highly in this list and, and most of that universe has a bit of a growth biased bar Aberforth which is more value orientated but a lot of those growth biased equity um, UK small cap funds uh, struggled last year. So in terms of looking at 2022 as, as obviously one of the worst years in recent years we've had a very strong run for most of the decade in a bit since the global financial crisis apart from that uh, pandemic wobble it's generally the case, as you say, that uh, investment trusts in the equity part of the universe tend to have a growth bias. They also tend to have an overseas bias. And of course, these uh, sort of average figures also include some very large trusts, which have been most adversely affected, like Scottish mortgage. Was there anything distinctive, though, about the winners and losers last year compared to previous years? I suppose it's difficult to compare it to the pandemic year because everything went down basically for a, about a month. But if you go back as far as the global financial crisis, if I'd said to you at the beginning of the year, we're going to have a down market for equities, would you have expected roughly this kind of behaviour, apart from one or two anomalies? I think in general, it probably fits the bill of what you would have said, that many of these companies you'd naturally call probably higher beta, relatively high market exposure sectors. I think a lot of them uh, make sense and, uh, and perhaps some areas... That, certainly in the technology that have performed very well and perhaps certainly in retrospect look vulnerable to, to re-ratings. I suppose the surprise probably would have been the, the, the steep recovery in energy costs and commodity prices, which benefited plenty of uh, companies with exposure to that area, which you know often if you've got weak markets, a downturn, that might be poor for commodities, but in, in this case, the, the rising commodity market has been a bit of a trigger for everyone getting in trouble on the inflation side of things. That's certainly the case. And of course, we did lose a few investment trusts. I mean, there's a long period when growth was very popular, and so a lot of the money flooded into the growth stocks. And it's interesting if you look at some of the bigger ones like Scottish Mortgage or the tech trust you mentioned. And if you go back and look at the kind of chart, they're basically back on the trend that they were before we had that remarkable post-pandemic boost when everything went a little bit haywire, all that liquidity came into the system, and they've all now kind of re-rated. So they've performed badly last year, but they've sort of gone back to their kind of medium-term trend line, if you can talk about such a thing. So it does rather suggest that the anomaly was actually the period after the pandemic, rather than necessarily this year just gone, where we've basically just given back most of what we gained during that uh, that period. Would you agree with that way of looking at things? I think taking that longer-term view is very important. And if you look at some of the longer-term track records over over probably more meaningful time periods, then I agree that is what you see. 
funds that will have hurt a lot in the last 12 to 18 months if you're a holder of them over more like even a you know three to five year period which is almost the minimum anyone should be looking at if you invested before then then you'd be well in the money and you know the record's looking very good so certainly i think it is a moment we always live in unusual times but um i think it, it particularly so over the last few years with that leap up and, and back down again and taking the time to to put it in that longer term context is very important while also making sure you assess that that the environment is somewhat different and that investment cases stack up in this changing environment and that certainly um in the alternative space which we can go on to talk about is is something that a lot of investors are looking at and of course the other new factor is the fact that we have seen this very sharp rise in bond yields over the course of the year accentuated in the UK's case by the fiasco of the trust government. And so, yeah, let's talk about the alternatives then. They obviously tend not to feature at the very top of the winners and losers uh, tables because equity investments tend to be more volatile and more affected by uh, changes in the market. But that increase in bond yields has had a pretty dramatic effect on the uh, discounts of alternative asset uh, trusts as a whole. That's evident, is it not? Yes, certainly. So in terms of performance last year on alternatives, it was a very interesting year and and one of those games of two halves with the impact of the September mini budget having a big impact on on areas like infrastructure, um, property and, and renewables. Over the course of the whole year, it's sort of quite interesting that the likes of renewables actually performed pretty strongly given that power price backdrop whilst you know having a much more difficult second half of the year whilst infrastructure funds did did suffer from rising bond yields and people assessing what the appropriate discount rate is to place on their long-term cash flows a higher interest rate and, and discount rate implying a lower future value of those cash flows and then potentially navs and we've we've seen some of those impacts coming in in q4 Although there's been quite a few mitigating positive impacts, where the real pain was was felt across property funds during the course of the year, property investment companies, where that rising rate environment is likely to feed through to negative capital values and and the markets reflecting that in wide discounts already, and also in private equity, particularly growth capital. The likes of Chrysalis down nearly 70% last year, Shahalian, the Bailey Gifford growth capital vehicle around 60%, and many more mainstream private equity down 30 or, or, or 40%, which, um, you know, very sharp falls. And in some cases, I think, uh, reflecting some overly pessimistic views. But some of the winners on the alternative side were a number of funds making some big recoveries. Aircraft leasing did incredibly well, up sort of 50%, some of them, others 70 and one in particular more than doubling on the back of resurgence of passenger numbers and and Emirates in particular, looking like it's going to operate its A380 fleet for longer. So recoveries from low bases, also in, in energy, the likes of Riverstone. Um, but interestingly, those those renewable energy type funds actually feature on the, the list of the best performers because the high power price more than outweighed the impact of interest rates and potentially rising discount rates in there. And also a few defensive funds like Brevenhaub Macro p- performing very well in a volatile environment, 
the hedge fund and biopharma credit uh, a manager sort of proving its strong credit underwriting uh, and that you can still make money in, in credit in the biotech sector despite equity investors um, suffering some pretty substantial losses. So some impressive performances in there given the backdrop, but some pretty challenging ones for, for certain areas of the, the sector. So I think that's a d- distinguishing feature of last year. Basically, that uh, alternative asset sort of juggernaut that we've had for the last few years of a number of new funds coming to the market and also then coming back and raising more money repeatedly, it's been such a hot area. But now that sector as a whole has moved to a discount, even though a lot of them perform quite strongly over the year. Most of the trusts in both renewables and infrastructure have moved to a discount. We're going to come back and talk about discount opportunities later on. But that's a significant trend in itself, because for the last few years, we have actually seen the alternative asset sector trading at a premium rather than a discount. And that appears to have come to an end, at least for the time being. And that's also dragged down the overall average of the investment trust sector discount over the year. You would endorse that. Yes, certainly. The alternatives taken in aggregate, which is quite a disparate bunch to, to aggregate, we're trading on a small premium, around a two premium at the start of the year, but are currently just shy of a, a 20 discount, 19 discount. They ended the year, the alternative assets with the big shifts being private equity moving from a, a bit of a discount to a much wider one. Uh, as you mentioned, infrastructure, property moving from premiums to discounts in the case of infrastructure, small at just under 3% discount at the end of 2022, but property more meaningfully, just shy of 30% discounts on average. So that higher rate environment is certainly leading investors to question whether these alternative income mandates stand up. Um, I think you've had a factor of looking at potential declines in capital value, but also other investments that um, are now competing for capital, if you can get any sort of return from, well, a return from government bonds, from investment grade bonds, then they become competition for these types of investments in the way that they hadn't been in the past. And I think what's going to be very important is funds delivering on on the quality of their cash flows and, uh, and their earning streams so that uh, they can demonstrate that they actually do have whatever inflation linkage they've claimed, and that's robust in in a more inflationary environment, or you see strong demand for uh, areas that that offer genuine exposure to floating rate assets or benefit from rising interest rates. And I think you'll see quite a lot of dispersion in performance between the funds that have promised that type of return profile and the others that struggle to deliver it when the going gets tough. So for the alternatives, we're moving from a period of promise to delivery, as you say, where they've got to prove their credentials. It's been a bit too easy in a way in the last few years until this uh, last year, as you say. So let's talk about the issuance figures. The big story, a headline story, I guess, is that there were no IPOs last year, effectively. And uh, there was secondary issuance, but not as much as in previous years. So um, how would you sum up the uh, the story on the issuance front? Again, the situation evolved a lot during the course of the year. And, and overall, issuance, I'm still working through all the figures, but the provisional figures I've got are 5.6 billion during the course of the year, which was down 66%, a record level in, in 2021, admittedly. And this is the lowest year for, for new issuance since 2012. In fact, since the the 2008 to, to 12 period post-financial crisis, 
Um, since then, we've had pretty robust issuance driven by that demand, particularly for alternative income mandates. Over the course of the year, amongst the strongest issuers have been the defensive investment trusts. So the likes of capital gearing, rougher personal assets, as well as hedge fund Berevan Macro, also issuing um, a sizable amount of capital. Early on in the year, you had a fair bit of issuance from property funds, but that dried up really um, in, in May with home REIT's last issuance. You had LXI and supermarket income REIT raising money during the early part of the year. And also you had quite a lot of issuance from infrastructure renewable funds, international public partnerships raising more than 300. TRIG, the Renewables Infrastructure Group, just shy of that number in, in March and a number of energy efficiency and energy transition funds raising money. But that very much over the summer as the higher rate environment became more apparent and, and entrenched, uh, that very much slowed down um, and, and, and stopped really. And Hickel Infrastructure in July would probably be the last meaningful issuance in that area. What we saw in the IPO fronts was a completely barren year with no IPOs and and that really is incredibly unusual. I certainly haven't seen that happen. I've dredged through my numbers and I'm very certain, certainly uh, back to 2000. And in fact, I think the last time there was a year without an investment company IPO may well have been the mid 80s, but I'm still trying to exactly pin that one down. I was in short trousers at the time, so you might need to give me a little bit of time to work on those numbers. We have did see issuance from equity income funds and, and funds with a bit more of a value bias, the likes of City of London Merchants, Lord of Venture. But from growth equity funds, that really slowed down. Smithson did issue a, around 90 million over the course of the year, but all of that was in, in Q1. In the final quarter, that was certainly the lowest quarter for issuance we've seen since um, I've got records in 2010. So a very slow year and uh, end to the year. Defensive still issuing of, of late, but in lower quantities. Equity income in, in the likes of City of London and Merchants a little bit. And what we've seen, interestingly, is 24 income, which has exposure to European ABS markets, debt markets, and 24 select monthly income at sister fund with broader exposure to less liquid areas of the debt markets. But interestingly, certainly the first one, all floating rate income, and, and the second one, largely floating rate income, that you've seen further issuance speaking to that theme of, of funds that can do well in a higher rate environment. So I suppose it raises a couple of issues, this dearth of IPOs and, and a big fall in secondary issuance, as you've said. One question, I guess, is will there be some trusts, particularly in the alternative sector, which were making commitments and expecting to raise further money in due course? Are there likely to be some cases where that no longer is possible and therefore one or two of these alternative asset trusts might find themselves a little short of, they have to refinance or sell an asset or do something because they're running short of cash, same in private equity. Is that a possibility, a possible constraint we might see? I think that is certainly something got to look at and, and be aware of. And it is the area that funds really get themselves in a mess in. And you saw that during the global financial crisis, particularly in the property and property where funds were 
more leveraged than they are now and private equity funds where they were a little bit leveraged and committed had those future commitments and that's where you saw very value destructive rights issues and the like and the need to sell assets it's definitely one to watch but i think it's a bit more stock specific than broad brush certainly the listed private equity funds their balance sheets are a lot more conservative than they were in the past they have been burnt once and that corporate memory is still there and, and commitment strategies and more conservative debt facilities tend to be in place as backstops. So I'm relatively relaxed there about the commitments. Certainly property funds are less levered than they were in the past. That cost of that debt is certainly something that um, people are keeping a, an eye on and, and some who had to refinance at the more volatile time for, for guilt yields are nursing some, some wounds there. But I think certainly the nature of that debt particularly is if you've now got long-term debt, I think it was Schroeder Real Estate broke its debt a couple of years ago, which was expensive at the time to do, but has now put in place a long-term cheap debt, which is looking beneficial. So it is highlighting those funds that are, if you've got in place that long-term fixed rate debt, and we've seen a lot of the more equity-focused part of the universe put that in place in recent years, that should be beneficial. And funds having a bit of a squeeze or concerns about their levels and cost of debt. You have seen that in the likes of Hypnosis, Songs, the Music Royalty Fund, which had um, floating rate debt and therefore the cost of its debt was was increasing. It has done a, a refinancing on, on that to make it more stable. So certainly that squeeze on earnings from floating rate debt, a lot of attention is being paid to that at the moment. And you will see funds that were just returning to the market to pay down acquisition facilities, particularly in the infrastructure renewable space, having to work a bit harder to make sure that they're paying down that debt from cash flows and they're not building up excessive levels of, of debt through acquisition if the issuance taps have, have been turned off. But in general, they haven't tended to have so much in the way of long-term commitments, um, more making acquisitions using a debt facility and then paying it down through issuance so a slightly different structure to what we saw during the GFC with the listed private equity. And then looking across the equity investment trust sector as well, because we've had this very poor year and we've seen some discounts widen out a lot, do you think we're going to get more consolidation? Consolidation is something which, uh, you know, in other words, investment companies merging or going out of business or closing down. Uh, we've had one or two uh, wind downs this year already. Do you expect to see more? And if so, do you expect to see that come in the form of continuation votes being rejected or in terms of boards just deciding not to carry on or something worse or maybe some M&A? What, what do you think is the outlook in terms of that, particularly if the uh, issuance market remains closed for a while? So on consolidation, on the long term, historically, it's been pretty difficult to achieve outright M&A because the universe was dominated by equity funds that you could defend a hostile approach through returning capital at close to NAV through liquidating your portfolio. Now we have a sector that's around 50% alternatives. That is much less liquid. The valuations are more subjective. And they're open to the, the, the shifts in sentiment and the discounts opening up that we get in listed markets. 
which does mean that M&A in that area and outright acquisitions is much more likely and has been more prevalent in recent years. And and I think that's certainly one to watch in coming years if alternative funds remain on, on discounts for long periods. Examples of that, we, we saw a number of listed debt funds being taken out in recent years or going into wind down. Um, that's certainly a possibility if, if performance doesn't live up to expectations. You do have Hypnosis Song, which is on a 40-odd discount with a continuation vote coming up and lots of capital being deployed in, in private markets in, in that area. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any trigger for corporate action around that. Uh, on the equity side of things, I think it's going to be a really interesting time and whether people deliver on performance expectations. And that's normally where you see corporate action in terms of changing the manager to a different group. We've had a fair amount of shifting from value to growth managers, uh, possibly at an inopportune time in recent years. Interesting to see if that, that trend reverses. But I think they'll certainly be assessing performance records in the more different environment. And quite a few funds have put in place things like performance or discount triggered tender offers in future dates. Who's got that coming up? The likes of Templeton Emerging, Schroeder Japan Growth, JP Morgan Indian in the next couple of years. And so making sure that you know performance stands up over that period. Otherwise, there could be further pressure to either return capital or reassess the mandate. So I think that to me sounds like a, a caveated yes to the question. There will be more activity of that sort. Uh, certainly the market continues this way. Let's talk about the other side, of course, of all this, which is, I mean, M&A is part of it, but uh, why discounts do create opportunities. You put out some thoughts on that uh, this week. Before we do that, though, let's just pick up on there has been very little uh, news this week from the investment trust sector. I mean, really astonishingly little, actually, even though it's the first week of the year, people haven't got back and had time to polish their numbers. So we had no kind of results this week, but we had a couple of interesting news items. One of them is it concerns home reach. You mentioned home reach already. This is the uh, social housing trust, which has come under attack from a short seller and is struggling to deal with that situation. They've made an announcement this week. Perhaps you could uh, uh, just tell us what that is and uh, what you think the significance of it is. Certainly. Well, home reach, the shares are currently suspended following that report from the short sellers. The, the auditors are doing a number of enhanced audit procedures and the company had until the 31st of December, four months after its year end, to, to file its accounts, which it now hasn't made. So that'll be suspended until the results become published. And yes, it is facing questions from, from short sellers on the viability of its its tenants. We've certainly seen that. This is for homeless accommodation. And, and we've seen similar issues across the social housing sector and whether they're, they're, that's questions on the sustainability of of rents and also the values they've been paying for their assets. So you've currently got that hanging over things and the shares being suspended. But the management group was actually effectively spun out of its parent company, Alvarium, this week. And so that now sits as a separate entity with the same, well, same people uh, are currently running it. And that, I think, is, is mainly driven by the uncertainty around this, this short selling and, and potential legal cases that have been mentioned um, whilst the parent company is undergoing a, a SPAC transaction. And so having this 
level of uncertainty, the way I understand it, when you're going through a SPAC transaction would lead to an element of due diligence that would just be um, a bit much for the, the SPAC investors to deal with. So it's somewhat being moved off the books to make that SPAC transaction simpler and yeah, leaves the management team of home in a slightly different entity with some funding from the, the management group. And I think uh, ability to buy it back potentially in future. But yeah, so for further uncertainty for shareholders of that one who are certainly going to await the audited accounts with, with a lot of interest. Yeah, so I guess you could interpret that move to, as you say, spin off the management company in two ways. You could say, well, they're trying to kind of uh, wash their hands of it because there are more problems there. Or you could say it's simply because they're in the business at a corporate level of trying to pull off this big deal, which involves also listing on one of the US exchanges. It's just a way of getting it out of the way while they complete that process. So I guess you could interpret it one of two ways, one perhaps more positive than the other, but we'll have to wait and see the outcome of that. Also interesting to pick out not so much a news item, but a market move. There was a sharp sell-off in the shares of RIT Capital Partners, ticker RCP, which is surprised in a way. It was a response apparently to a newspaper article or a newspaper columnist writing about the shares because uh, RIT Capital has been around for a long time, had a very successful long-term track record. Okay, it's a couple of years since uh, Jacob Rothschild, who started it, kind of stepped back and retired. But the team has been in place for a long time and it's uh, you know had a, had a bad year, but uh, that does happen. So tell us what you think is going on there. The shares, as I say, sold off almost uh, 10%, I think, on this... Uh, unfavorable newspaper article which uh, does seem rather an extreme reaction yeah so rick capital i I do think is a very interesting vehicle it looks to provide an attractive risk adjusted return through participating in in the market upside whilst offering some insulation during falling markets so you know the managers do take some risk in doing that and you do expect some exposure to the market, but on more of an insulated basis. And as I understand, I think the article was comparing to, I'd say, more defensive companies like personal assets and uh, and capital gearing and preferring those for a capital protection uh, and rougher, a capital protection mindset. And I suppose it depends what you're targeting and what you're going for. Also, over recent months, the companies face some questions about the rising exposure to unquoted, which has increased over recent years, mainly based on strong performance of that part of the portfolio. And yeah, the shares were off nearly 10%, putting it on around a 17% discount, which is very wide compared to history for a high quality fund manager. So perhaps an interesting opportunity for people to have a look at. And looking at that, the unquoted certainly are a part of the um, the investment piece and the managers used unquoted exposure over recent years to invest in the technology space predominantly using funds or co-investments alongside some of the leading managers in that area. And the reason they did that is that they saw a lot better value in unquoted markets in technology compared to listed markets where, where valuations were very extended. So You certainly have to look at the valuations of those unquoted and the unquoted funds are now valued in the NAV at or over 90% of the unquoted funds are valued at 30th of September and the just over 
10% of NAV that's in these direct uh, sort of co-investments in unquoted companies is valued at June. I would say the sort of market multiple backdrop, the worst of that was during the first half of the year. And so you would hope that that has been largely reflected in the valuations and you've had a bit of a recovery in markets since then. So certainly right to be paying attention to it, but I think it's a, a manager that through its approach of combining unquoted with quoted equity, often looking for investments which have either some sort of inherent downside protection, such as many of its unquoted investments do have some downside protection in the structures, or through having absolute return investments and credit investments in its portfolio that that tend to perform better when other parts of the portfolio struggle. Um, I still think it's the type of fund that has the ability to deliver in a, a range of conditions. Yeah, I wouldn't ever expect it to protect against all market declines, but that downside protection while participating in the upside has, has led to very strong returns over the long term. Yes, it has still got a very strong, well over double digit annualised return since it's uh, launched back in the 1980s. And it's fair to say, I think, that they shouldn't be compared directly with the personal assets and roughest because they've always had this private equity exposure. They've always had different sort of asset allocation to those other ones, which on the whole don't have any private equity exposure and won't have any private equity exposure. But an interesting anomaly, quite often these uh, instant market reactions do create opportunities. So let's talk about the discount opportunities that might be out there. Obviously, uh, we're not talking about recommendations at this stage, but we're just talking about interesting looking situations where it may be that the market has overreacted for whatever reason. You've mentioned a couple already. I mentioned the music royalties, for example, because this is an interesting one where, as you say, for example, Blackstone, the big private equity American firm, which has also been investing directly alongside the people from Song, they are still buying assets. And uh, that would suggest that this discount in the Song case, I mean, it has to be resolved one way or the other. Either investors come back to that uh, particular trust or it's likely that somebody will come along, possibly Blackstone, uh, who know the portfolio better than anybody probably, and they might look to take it out. So um, that's one uh, sort of special situation. But in terms of sort of general areas where you think there might be opportunities, do you think there's yet any opportunities in the growth sector? We talked about the fact interest rates are higher. That tends to encourage a switch from growth to value. And anyway, we've had a big run from growth and it's probably values turn as it was last year. So do you think there are outstanding opportunities? Are the discounts wide enough in the uh, equity growth sector to uh, create some interesting opportunities? Yeah, I certainly reiterate sort of highlighting areas where discounts are wide rather than giving anyone any recommendations. And, and certainly this is at the time of publication this morning or last night, and these things can change day by day. So please you know, check anything at the time of, of listening, because the one thing I can guarantee the situation will be slightly different. And sort of framing the the argument and looking at discount opportunities, it's certainly something that I think is worth looking at to give yourself a potential tailwind to any investment, and particularly in the context that, that possibly quite a bit of the universe of investors in investment companies are um, perhaps a bit less nimble at looking at discount opportunities than they were in the past. A lot of money is managed through model portfolios and there's been a lot of consolidation of wealth managers fueling that, which which means that 
large liquid and, and long-term allocations tend to be the driver of things rather than taking advantage of short-term opportunities that offer a interesting entry point. There's probably less people who are able to participate in, in that sort of thing than there was in, in the past. But yeah, I certainly do think there's there's quite a few opportunities around RIC Capital we mentioned or, or, or wide discounts of that around. On the growth side of things, I would say there's definitely a value where there wasn't value 12 to 18 months ago. But also you have to do the equation of the underlying discount and your outlook for the NAV as well. And and over the long term, your, your big driver is probably likely to be the NAV, but I, I think a discount can be a good tailwind as well. You are seeing the likes of Scottish Mortgage is on around a, a 10% discount currently. Uh, Monks, it's more diversified. Sister Fund at Bailey Gifford offering exposure to, to growth companies on double-digit discounts as well. So I think it might be an interesting time to get into growth. I wouldn't say that the valuations are extreme in those areas. They certainly have been wider around the mini budget. Uh, notably, the mortgage discount did fly out further at that stage. And you, you've got a period now where we're really going to see whether some of these companies deliver or, or not in the sort of technology and growth space. And that delivery of revenue or earnings versus expectations is, is going to be really important uh, on the underlying funds, uh, underlying companies. And I think that's teeing up a period where you're going to get a lot more dispersion of performance, perhaps a return of the active manager and stock selection to be able to drive things. And so I think it's picking managers that you think can perform well in this range of conditions. You know, I do think a portion of your portfolio in something like Scottish Mortgage makes some sense, certainly when it's on, on a discount, but you've got to be prepared for the inherent volatility in that. I think technology trusts um, the likes of Polar Cap and Polar Cap Technology, Alliance Technology are, are trading on double digit discounts or around that level, which um, again starts to give you a nice tailwind to start your investment. I think perhaps one really interesting area is the biotech and life sciences space, which has been heavily out of favour but has started to recover. And I think you've got a number of well managed funds in that area where you can benefit from the, the trends in innovation and earnings and revenue streams that are, are likely to be uncorrelated to wider equity markets. And, and you, you've got some very cheap valuations, certainly in the mid and small cap space in that area. Again, where picking individual stocks is very difficult. So putting that over to a manager like International Biotech or Biotech Growth, even Bellevue Healthcare, which has moved to a discount, can be good options for for investors in a pretty specialist area. And, you know, if you go down more in the private space, you've got the likes of Syncona in the, the biotech space, which I, I think all interesting options for investors in an area where you can see the potential for earnings to be uncorrelated to wider economies. Just a couple of comments on that. I mean, Monks, I thought, interesting, you know, it's on a 10 or 11% discount. And of course, doesn't have anything like as much of the sort of private exposure as most of the other Bailey Gifford Trusts do. Some of those other Bailey Gifford Trusts, you know, were given the mandate, what, only two years ago, uh, just about the point, as you said, when growth and private capital kind of started to be hit. So Monks, I think, has got a terrific long-term record and uh, 
It looks an interesting one to me anyway, on a 10, 11% discount. What about smaller companies? I mean, this is, this is always a tricky one. Smaller companies, again, one of the sort of strongest performing sectors over the longer term for uh, investment trusts and one of the areas where they consistently outperform their open-ended equivalents over time and where there's some very good managers. We've lost uh, one this year, of course, in Harry Nimmo at Aberdeen Smaller Companies, Growth Trust. He's retired, but uh, there are others like... Uh, Henderson smaller companies and the BlackRock smaller companies uh, teams have got good track records. What would you be looking out for to to sort of signal return to favour for those trusts? Uh, you know, good track records, pretty wide discounts. You know, more than ten percent in many cases. Uh, is that an area worth looking at? Yeah, certainly. And just touching back, you mentioned some of the Bailey Gifford funds with unquoted exposure, and I would highlight that Bailey Gifford are are very active in their valuation approach to those, and have highlighted that they've been writing down lots of those particularly during the first half to reflect market movement so valuations up to events tends to be something within those portfolios but still has unquoted exposure but on the smaller companies it is an interesting one i i think particularly in the uk well global and uk they've all been hit pretty hard the uk is very unloved whilst the FTSE 100 well, was broadly flat in the year, driven by those international companies and overseas earners, mining, oil and gas type exposures. The more domestically exposed smaller companies have been hit very hard and both the numerous smaller companies index and the FTSE 250 were, were down just shy of 20%, around 18%, I think. And so it's been a tough time. You have been left with those discounts. I do think the UK is an interesting market for people now to have a look at. It's been unloved for many years. It is on much cheaper valuations than major global markets. You're seeing now a pickup in M&A, particularly from international investors, seeing the value there. And and also investors have had a lot of exposure to overseas assets, big shifts in allocations from the likes of wealth managers overseas. Sterling's weakness has been very beneficial to that in recent years. And so maybe it's an interesting time to have a bit more UK exposure to to hedge the risk of of any sterling strength. We'll see whether that materialises or not, but just something worth worth considering. And and I think some of these UK companies, you're starting to see a slowing of outflows from the UK small cap open-ended funds, which I think would be quite important for both the ratings and the performance of the underlying companies. And so, yeah, I do think it is a, a good area. You've got various like um, Henderson smaller companies trading on double-digit discounts with that has a more sort of balanced growth at a reasonable price approach, whilst the the BlackRock vehicles tend to be more more the higher growth end of things and a general sort of growth bias to that part of the the market bar Aberforth, which is the real value player. So yeah, I do think the UK is potentially a sort of interesting more somewhat contrarian allocation despite the headwinds we're seeing in the economy i think there is is scope on those valuations to perhaps um, benefit in the medium term as an investor let's then then finish by talking about the uh, alternative space and where there might be some opportunities there well we've mentioned a couple already by implication at least let's just take in order then let's just start with the property sector i mean we've seen rising bond yields and they've had their impact there's a risk of a recession. We may be in a recession already in the UK. We probably are. And that's generally not good for property as a whole. 
Uh, so a combination of rising bond yields, higher debt costs, where appropriate, and uh, risk of uh, a recession are all negatives. But do you think there is uh, still value to be found there? And if so, you know, should one go for the kind of safer options, uh, the ones like LXI and so on, who have a good track record and long-term inflation-linked leases and so on on their property? Or should you go for something, you know, more uh, higher risk with more upside, I guess, but also greater downside? It's it's a tricky market because the the news flow is likely to remain negative for some time here. You, you, you've mentioned the headwinds you're facing and an average discount of just shy of 30% on the sector reflects that. I think certainly being wary of some of the areas where you might have um, pretty low initial yields versus increasing debt costs is a squeeze to, to watch out for. I think there's uncertainty in the areas like social housing. You did in, in December have some further negative news on counterparties of, of Triple Point and Civitas, which still means that there's a lot of risk in the discounts on, on those types of fund, in, in, in my view. I think it is those funds agree that the likes of LXI with inflation linkage on its portfolio or where you can add value through operations and you know things like a trade of real estate trading on a 27 discount currently. As I mentioned, it, it sort of got its debt in order. So I, I think that in the property space, yeah, still likely to have negative news flow, but, but could be some opportunities within that. I mean, private equity, you mentioned already, you see some opportunities there. The discounts are very wide in a number of cases, and we've talked about this ad nauseum almost on the podcast. But so far, there's been no real movement in the discounts of any particular note anyway, I would say. In other words, people are aware of the discounts, they're aware of the argument, but they're also wary of the valuations and the impact of higher debt costs and so on, and liquidity issues and so on. But um, again, there are some quality animals out there, if I can use that expression. So perhaps one should talk about the quality rather than necessarily the discount, because it's... uh, Discounts are always interesting opportunities, but they're not the be-all and end-all, as you said already. Where do you think the sort of best combination of quality and uh, potential value might lie in that uh, in that sector? I do agree that this is a sector that offers very good value. I think the market is is treating it harshly, and the, the quality of the underlying businesses are, are much better than many think. That at the fund level, balance sheets are in decent shape. And underlying companies, whilst no doubt there will be specific headwinds, in general they're invested in less cyclical businesses, high recurring revenue streams is a key theme of many of the businesses in these types of portfolios, Uh, avoiding cyclical areas like mining, energy, commodities, high street retail don't really feature. So I think that's a good backing going into a difficult environment while acknowledging that the underlying businesses are themselves leveraged, it's sort of trying to put leverage on a reliable earning stream has been the, the mantra and delivering operational improvement has been key value driver and that's going to be essential going forward. I think the the likes of an HD Capital on a 20-odd discount, 18, I think, is interesting. It invests in, in dull technology, so automating business processes, which increases efficiency, is something that in a higher cost environment, businesses look to do more and more of. So that those type of software should be in strong demand. And, you know, interestingly, in December, the portfolio is solely focused on software as service type businesses. And it, it sold um, Transporum in the fleet logistics 
space, which was around 17-80% uplift to valuation, and which equated to a, a 25% uplift to December 2021 20, valuations. So selling an investment at a material uplift to the start of the year in this environment is is really quite instructive that there is value in the high quality businesses. There will be losers clearly in portfolios as well, but I think uh, making sure those those top businesses are high quality. And I think something like a Oakley Capital, which leverages off its um, entrepreneurs network and, and gets into complex deals, which gives it low entry multiples, is quite an interesting one in this sort of environment and trades on a over 35% discount. And the more diversified plays on over 40 discounts, things like Pantheon, Harbourvest, uh, a near 40 discount for ICG Enterprise, all, all look interesting to me. And then finally, I'll ask you about the renewables. I mean, it's been a bit of a two-way pull, as you've said. They've had the benefit of higher power prices and the absence of a windfall profits tax uh, until this year anyway, uh, on the one hand, and then uh, rising bond yields and uh, higher discount rates on the other. Uh, they sort of kind of battled their way to a bit of a score draw by the end of the year, uh, I think, but there are still trading at a discount. I guess so much of this depends on what you think is going to happen to the price of oil and gas this year. It obviously, uh, if if we see more of the what we had last year, prices have been falling recently. That would suggest some sort of further weakness in power prices over the medium term. But on the other hand, they've been a very successful sector with the whole weight of energy transition behind them. You'd think they're... Uh, quite good bets for the longer term. So uh, where do you see that coming out and uh, uh, how do you see that being reflected in discounts? Well, touching on, I, I think, core infrastructure as well is is an interesting area, particularly of it. the quality of cash flows in, in that space, I think, is probably undervalued. And the one that's trading on a discount is international public partnerships, I think around a 6% discount. And I think whenever those types of funds move to a discount, then you are getting extremely high quality cash flows at an attractive price. On the renewable side of things, you have had the impact of higher power prices have been very positive for NAVs and and has fueled actually decent returns over the year, despite um, quite a a big derating. And again, I think these are, are pretty high quality cash flows that when they do move to discounts, start to become attractive but a discount to what is always the tricky thing and each manager's approach to valuation is is all slightly different so understanding the 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 makeup of the nav and the assumptions within that does make it quite tricky to assess your valuation and so understanding the asset value is important as looking at just headline premiums and discounts in this space and I think there are some quality players here. The likes of Bluefield Solar is one that we think the, the quality of the underlying portfolio is, is very good, which should support the yield of over 6% growth in that yield, particularly given the, you know, the capital discipline that manager showed in terms of growing a lot more slowly during the, the boom years for the industry and focusing on the quality of the underlying revenues partly because at the time it had a very well-structured performance fee, but um, it, it now has no performance fee. Also, uh, Greencoat Wind, uh, uh, you know, a large player in the sector and trading on a double-digit discount. I think that's unusual and, and could be something uh, yeah, in, investors uh, worth a look at. Very good. Well, on that note, Ewan, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts with us uh, the first week of the year. 
This week in the Moneymakers Circle, we have a profile of monks, uh, something we've mentioned in this podcast, and we'll be having one next week on SDCL Energy Efficiency, one of the interesting uh, newer trusts in the renewable energy space, uh, as well as my own comments and our regular features summary of all the main price, NAV and discount movements over the course of this week, and also, of course, over the course of the last year. So you can review that along with my own thoughts of what might do well this year. Uh, That's it for this week. Look forward to speaking to you all again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.